Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. So today we have the opportunity to talk with two dear friends and colleagues, Matt Alexander and Jessica Huang. Jessica Wong is an educator and leader with over 20 years of experience as a classroom teacher, school administrator, and leadership coach and facilitator. Through her on-the-ground work in schools, she creates healing-centered, student-focused spaces where students of all backgrounds thrive. Jessica has a Bachelor's of Foreign Service from Georgetown University and a Master's of Education from Stanford. Jessica brings all this expertise to her current role as Director of High Schools in the San Francisco Unified School District. Matt Alexander has 20 years of experience working in the San Francisco public schools, including a decade as a teacher and a decade as a high school principal. Since 2021, he has served as an elected member of the San Francisco Board of Education. Matt started his career as a teacher at Balboa High School in 1996, and he was a co-founder of June Jordan School for Equity in the early 2000s. He now works as a community organizer at Faith in Action Bay Area. Welcome to Street Data Pod, Jess and Matt. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. And honestly, I feel a little bit emotional coming into this conversation because we're sort of all in this, like these middle years of our careers, right? Where we're not quite elders, but we're not in the early years. And I think we are all wrestling with what does it mean to contribute to this generational work around justice? As a warm up question, I want to ask each of you, what is an innovation or an idea in the world, does not have to be an education at all, that is grabbing your attention lately? Jess, you want to start? Yeah, and I I think that this is not a new idea. I'm working with a Reiki practitioner and learning a lot about energy work and just the idea that through our own manifesting of our energy through our body, we can actually impact our surroundings. But it's really helped me channel and center my intentionality in a world that feels very hard and messy right now. That is beautiful. You had me at energy work, Jess. Thank you, Jess. What about you, Matt? Well, as you know, I work as a community organizer. And one of the things I've been thinking about in our organizing work is narrative and the power of narrative. One of my organizing mentors says that we all, each of us has a story we tell about how the world works and our own role in it. And the Mm. role of organizers is to help folks kind of discover and unpack those stories and then decide if they want to change them. Both our own stories, but also the stories of how the world operates. And so that's been, it's been really helping me think about the work in a bigger, deeper sense. Fantastic. All right, Matt, we're going to start with a question for you. So I first met you in 1997. I was finishing my master's in education at Stanford Teacher Education Program, and you were a year ahead of me. You had gone to step and were a first-year teacher at Balboa High School in Southeast San Francisco. I remember visiting your classroom and getting really excited about the pedagogy you were modeling and thinking, this is where I want to teach, and it is where I ended up teaching, as you know. I then wound up teaching down the hall from you at BAL, where we worked collectively 
collaboratively as social studies teachers to lead a mock Congress project across our classrooms where our friend Javier was the president. And this is really still one of my favorite memories from early teaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you to be a young teacher, a white teacher in a school with almost all students of color at BAL in the late 90s and what you learned about a pedagogy that centers student voice? Yeah, and thank you for bringing me back to my 20s and that wonderful time at Val. I feel younger already. <laughs> and I also, in addition to Javier and uh, Gutierrez and Ken Gonzalez, and we should also give a shout out to Conrad Benedicto, who's still teaching yes. at Val and who actually mentored me in that government curriculum, kind of gave me that curriculum. And so it was kind of the foundation of that whole effort. Coming in uh, as an educator at that time was really transformative moment in my life. I, I grew up on the East Coast in Columbia, Maryland, which was a planned community that was racially integrated. So for a white person of my generation, I was born in 1970, it was kind of an unusual experience, but that was kind of yeah. what I knew. What high school did you graduate? Away from? Uh, see, I went to a private school. I went to Running Brook Elementary, but then got sent to a private school based on an experience I had with a teacher. My parents thought, oh, oh he's not getting a good education here. So yeah, yeah so okay. we need to go back to that one. <laughs> but I also grew up, I grew up really believing in the American dream. My great grandparents brought their kids to the U.S. from this dirt poor farming village in southern Italy. And my grandmother left school at age 13 because she had to work. And then her son, my dad, went to a private college on a full scholarship. He kind of lived my, and generationally, sort of my family had lived the American dream. And then having grown up in Colombia, I was kind of grown up in the 70s believing that, you know, racial justice and equity and the American dream was real. Like I was like, this, this is happening, you know? Yeah. And so part of the reason I moved to San Francisco was because I'd heard it was a place where it was real. You know what I mean? Like it was this diverse city where anyone could come and be welcome and be included. And, and I don't want to be overly nostalgic about the 90s in San Francisco, but there was something really special happening here in those That's moments. True. I mean, there was also inequality and violence and all kind of stuff, but there was a community that was really multiracial and mm -hmm. super inclusive. And so like as a young white teacher coming in, I actually am shocked looking back on how welcomed I was and how much, mm. like nobody said, what the hell are you doing here? You know, it was like, thank you for being a part of this space. Mm -hmm. I was really welcomed and made to feel like I belonged mm. in this city at that time. Last week or the week before I was talking with some Pacific Islander leaders here in the city. And it turned out both of them had gone to Bao in the 90s. They were talking about relationships between Pacific Islanders and Latinos and Blacks and white. Like it was this really diverse group of people. And there was this sense of community solidarity. I feel like that's what it was like for me. It was like I was kind of welcomed into this space where I didn't necessarily have any right to expect to belong, but I was made to feel like I belonged. And so because of that, I think I also really learned to listen and learn from this community that was welcoming me, which included my students and their families. And so I think that was a really formative for me as a young teacher to just have that experience and then learn the value of it. So you mentioned the model Congress we did. We built out this 
project that lasted weeks. It was, must have been like a month long or something. You know, students would act as members of Congress. And so they got to write their own bills and try to get them passed into law. And the beauty of it was they learned all this stuff around how government works, but they also could bring their own interests, their own lived experience, stuff that mattered to them, right? So people would be like, well, my family is really struggling to pay the rent. So I'm going to write a bill that puts rent control in place or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. we'd have these debates about real issues and they'd have to convince a majority of their classmates to pass the bill. And we had lobbyists and we had members of the media. So they learned about all this stuff around how government functions and how the political world functions. But again, they could kind of use and develop based on their own interests. Lovely. So Jess, we first met when I was doing my thesis at June Jordan. And what's so interesting is we both have a unique experience in that most of our teaching careers has been rooted in very progressive small schools focused on social justice. And then you went on and you went on to teach and lead abroad. And so I would love for you to tell us about how those experiences have shaped you. And if you can speak to your experiences as an Asian American woman teaching and leading abroad in these neo-colonial spaces, I think that would also paint a picture for our listeners. You know, I, I think I'm so lucky and honored to have had a lot of my value system around education built in a small progressive space where we had the freedom, the collegiality, the relationships to build something really special. You know, my experience, two in Taiwan, one in Singapore, those three years, I think, really impacted my self-identity as an Asian American. I am the first person in my family born in the United States. And when I went back to Taiwan, my mother's home country, it was the first time that I taught all of the ninth graders in this small international high school in southern Taiwan. And it was the first time that the students that I taught, they all looked like me. Right. Mm. And even though they all mostly grew up in Taiwan, when I learned more about them and their backgrounds and their experiences, we had so many similarities. Having the experience of being loved and judged by what you know and your accomplishments right, versus who you could be in the world. I realized that in these neo-colonial spaces, we have so many international schools, they're expanding more and more year after year. And how are we exporting these stereotypes, right, Oof. from Western countries Oof. into Asia, into the African subcontinent, into Latin America? And what are we, what can we do about it? These students are amazing. And I think one stereotype that really speaks to me is just how do we bring fun and joy and respect for especially our Asian identified students, right? Mm. And how does that connect with the model minority myth and what we think our students want and what we think our students need? Ooh. And I think growing up, I had very few educators who I experienced as teachers who looked like me. And just to experience the fact that I was that person for them, that we had more similarities than differences was a really healing experience for me. You and I were part of a team of teachers from Balboa who really got apprenticed into community organizing 
by leaders and organizers from the San Francisco Organizing Project. And I remember going to Denise Coyasso, who is the head of this organization, and saying, we want to learn how to organize and we want to work with the community to build a model for a new small school. And we basically spent three years organizing and building power in the community to create a vision for a new school. It's just a moment in time that will never leave me. And I think the lessons from that organizing era have infused everything I've done since from being a principal to being a writer to being a coach. And of course, Matt, you are an organizer full time now. So what did that process teach you about leadership, about power, about democracy? And then how did those lessons show up in your principalship at June Jordan? So I want to start with democracy. And I want to go back a little bit before a couple years earlier to 1998 y'all these dates are gonna (laughs) blow some people's minds (laughs) in spring of 1998 i sponsored a club called close up which was a democracy education group from across the country and they did trips to washington dc and they gave us a bunch of scholarship money and said we could bring a group of students for there were a couple different schools in san francisco that participated and balboa was one and so i sponsored the club and so we had a group of students that went out there to dc for a week and i chaperoned and we had a fantastic trip we did all these activities learning about american government and like i said i'd been brought up believing in the american dream so to me i was like this is awesome right it was mostly immigrant students and i was like they're learning about the american government system and how they are part of the American dream, right? I have a photo of me standing with these three students at the Jefferson Memorial under this huge Mm. statue of Thomas Jefferson. It says, you know, all men are created equal. And we come back to San Francisco and I am having a conversation with Anna, who was the valedictorian of the senior class of 1998 at Balboa High School. And I said, Anna, where are you going to college? And this was one day after school. And I remember she broke down crying in my classroom. I said, what's what's wrong? And she said, well, I can't go to college. I w-. She said, it's my dream. You know, there's nothing I would love more, but I don't have papers. And so there's no way for me to attend uh, university. Because at that time, this was before AB 540 in California, there was basically no way for an undocumented student to attend college. She would have to pay foreign country tuition. There was no financial aid. And so she couldn't. For me, that was a real turning point because, I mean, there were other things as I've been learning along the way, obviously, too. But I mean, I just remember that moment of realizing that this whole idea of the American dream was actually a big lie for a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? And, and this, and the notion was, you know, my dad had been able to live it, right? As a white man who was born in the 1940s could, but this notion of kind of just, oh yeah, we can include everybody in the American dream wasn't going to happen, right? Or there was no path for it happening. I began to doubt myself as a teacher and I began to think that what we were doing, even in teaching about government, Shane, you know, in taking these kids on this trip to DC, I felt like it was almost like a form of gaslighting. It was like, oh, look, Oof. you know, this, oh, wow. this government is so amazing and you could be a part of it, but it actually is it's it's fake and we were selling a a lie not a dream thinking about quitting teaching in that moment. And I think one of the things that led me to not do so was, Shane, when you invited me to start that organizing effort. I mean, you, you said, let's go talk to these people who are community organizers. I didn't know what a community organizer was. You were the one who made the connections with the folks in Oakland who were doing the small schools organizing. And then we went to this meeting. Denise from SFOP said, okay, you guys have a bunch of folks there as teachers and young people and parents. We'll teach you how to organize. And so they assigned us an organizer. And we spent almost a year doing deep listening, right? 
right? One-on-one -on -one conversations in the community, talking with people, hearing their stories, sharing our stories. And then we would have these monthly meetings in the basement of Corpus Christi Church. And at first there'd be like eight people, right? And then the next month we had like 20 people. And then we had a meeting with 40 or 50 people. And then it started every month we had 50 or 60 people and we started building out this dream of what could education really look like, right? And then we took that trip. We took a research trip out to New York City with, we had 15 people. We had students, parents, teachers, a school board member we invited to come with us. And we built out this vision of, of a different kind of education based on what we were seeing out in New York. But we still couldn't get the attention of the superintendent. Remember, we, we tried for almost a year to meet with the superintendent of San Francisco Unified to say, look, we have this idea. And she just ignored us. And I understand, right? Who were we? A bunch of random young teachers and, and students and parents, right? So what we did, though, was we organized. And, and the organizer taught us. And we had this community meeting with 250 people and three school board members in November of 2001. And around the time of that meeting, we had three meetings with the superintendent in two weeks. Wow. And so we learned about how going from being somebody superintendent was going to ignore to somebody who all of a sudden really wanted to meet with us because we could put 250 people in a room and with a focused vision and ask school board members, will you commit to this? That to me was transformative mm. in understanding the power of organizing and how these the, the deep relationships we formed around a common vision, around common values could actually lead to change because two years later, we actually opened a new school, which is completely crazy, even when I think back on it, that we were able to do that. But it was all through that power of organizing. Mm. Thank you for taking us on that memory walk. It's really powerful to think back to those times. And I'm curious if you could just briefly share how those lessons in organizing influenced or infused your principalship. Well, actually, this is something that Jessica and I worked together a lot on when we were co-directors at June Jordan. And I think we really tried to approach the school leadership through an organizing lens, right? Meaning being really intentional about building relationships, but also thinking about the relationships among others on campus, right? Whether that was mm. educators or other staff or students, right? And the parents as well. And then thinking again about just as we did in our early organizing, what are the common values? What are the common interests? And how do we work together to move those forward? Forward. And taking a power analysis, like being a, being willing to do a real power analysis and not shy away from thinking about the fact that power is a real thing. And we got to, if we want to make change, we got to see it. Well, thanks for that beautiful segue of like talking about your co-leadership, because chapter six profiles the three-year process that y'all led to the art of social justice teaching at June Jordan. Jess, when you um, came back from your time abroad and you re-entered the June Jordan community, what did you notice about instructional leadership and building coherence from that process that had begun while you were gone for a little bit? Yeah, and I think I want to start off by connecting to the idea of leadership that I really developed right at June Jordan, the idea that the leader's job is to facilitate leadership in others, and mm. it's emergent. In a school building, no matter how small or big, the leader isn't everywhere. And so how do we emerge this idea of the vision, but also the behaviors of what we want others to be doing within our building? Yes. And that's really about not really empowering others because I think everyone has and owns their power, but that's about eliciting that energetic vision from everybody in your building right? No mm. matter if it's the teachers or the students. You know, when I returned to June Jordan in 2012, after having left for a while as a leader, co-directing with Matt, a blueprint for the art of social justice teaching had already been drafted by using a strengths-based approach to observing teacher quality in classrooms through professional learning communities where people were observing each other and filming themselves. 
wow. right? And coming up with what they wanted to see and what question were they really struggling with. And by going through a process of watching the videos and coming up with shared language to describe teacher moves, the teachers were able to agree on what was good teaching and learning for social justice? What did it look like? Mm. Right. And then develop the shared language to describe it in practice. And I think once you have the buy in and once you have shared language, then you're just using that as a tool for the basis of professional development and the driving force for teaching. It's always a process. We're never there. Right. There's so many strengths that live in every single one of the classrooms, but they might be different. And then once the framework was established, I think after a couple of years, we ended up training students and really having students learn the framework and give feedback to teachers. And in the best case scenario, there was this practice that was happening between the learners and the teachers Mm. using shared language, really engaging in a process of reflection. Lastly, I think we hear about coherence a lot right now in educational speak. I think what's (laughs) really important is that students have a consistent experience in classes, Mm -hmm. that vision is connected to practice, and that the improvement process is anchored in supporting teachers with both mindset and behavior that supports the vision. So you have to have buy-in in a clear framework that speaks to both the mindset and behaviors in order for us to get towards coherence. And I think we build that together as a community. And then lastly, just this really great experience I had a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm working with June Jordan now with the assistant principal Amanda Chu and Carlos Herrera. And we were going through the video projects that teachers had made probably what, 12 years ago. And it not only builds towards coherence in that specific time and space, but it was a way to document and historicize our learning and knowledge so that current educators and teachers there can build on. So it was great. I went through videos, you know, even teachers there have their videos that they can talk about. And it's an iterative process, right? Change can happen. And teachers now can look at that and say, well, what's relevant for our school now? What do we want to change? Oh, great answer. Love that. Matt, you want to get in on this? (laughs) I mean, as usual, Jess explained it a lot better than I could. I think the only thing I could think of that I might add is just around accountability. There's all this talk in education about accountability. And I think a lot of times people think about accountability as, you know, standardized testing or accountability to the school district or to the state. And I think one of the things that I think was most powerful about this work that Jess is talking about is that it created accountability on a much more authentic way to our students and families. So once we had created this common vision around what does good teaching look like and then publicized it, put it on paper, right? And as she said, students themselves knew it, right? So students would be like, oh, warm demander is part of that thing. Miss so-and-so was not being a warm demander today in class. I mean, people, literally, literally students could say that. And that is authentic accountability, yes. right? They could articulate, right? And then I think related to that was we made classrooms public spaces. So the expectation was that any moment someone might come in and enter a classroom with a group of other staff, with a group of students, with a group of parents, visitors. And there was no expectation that we give teachers notice that we were coming in the classroom. I think that's such a weird practice in education that like somehow the classroom is this secret space. It's like bothering the teacher if we come in. No, classrooms are where the life of the school is. And so we should all be excited to be there. Now, you know, of course, if there was some 
sensitive discussion going on, the teacher might say, hey, this isn't a great time. But anyone could come in at any time. All of us were kind of stepping up our game because we had this common vision, common language, and always were in each other's spaces. So... I'm going to transition us out of the June Jordan era into kind of closer to where we are now. You know, one of the things Alcine and I have been talking about and grappling with lately are some of the maybe generational gaps in the education field right now in terms of ways of thinking, epistemologies, ways of being as a teacher that really shows up in stances and practices and in maybe like alignment with or rejection of certain kind of core approaches that the four of us were really steeped in early in our careers. So Jess, let's start with you. If you could share a story of a time when you struggled to lead across generational divides and where you feel like you faltered or misstepped, but also what you learned or would do differently today. The first experience I'll share is just, you know, as an Asian American female identified leader who started my leadership journey off, you know, in a small environment with people that I had already had relationships with. I think that holding authority with folks who were older than me were really challenging. Some of the ways in which I faltered really connect with my own identities of who I was as an authority figure, but also in the way that society kind of paternalizes and infantilizes in some ways Asian women. There are patterns of behavior that I really saw from educators who I was working with who were older around like telling me about myself in a way in which I didn't know, in a way that I feel like a grandparent would. But it wasn't a learning moment for me. And I felt like in the ways in which I faltered, I think in those early years was more around how did I hold authority while leaning into the relationship, understanding that they have knowledge in which I can learn from, but also where do you find the learning edge in order to be a warm demander for somebody who is older than you, who you're holding accountable. So older folks, find a reverse mentor, find a younger <laughs> mentor who you're in yeah relationship with, you know, have those hard conversations, learn the new language. There are new ideas and concepts that our new language exemplifies. It's about understanding where is our new language coming from and why? Mm. And then I think on the flip side, you know, I think we mentored a lot of alumni, the inspiration of that in helping someone move from adolescence to a self-identity of adulthood. I think those mentorship and, and that, those conversations, they're just so powerful. day in November when we gathered at a beautiful beach house. Listeners, if you're not following, this was my 50th birthday party (laughs) in November of 2022, where the four of us were among a larger group. And there was actually a broken a flue and a fire that filled the house with smoke. But we had more important things to talk about. We did. Because we were starting our own fire. 
we were. Because we were reminiscing about this radical dream. We were talking about like all the ways in which we had been connected through this community, this network, the Coalition of Essential Schools, and what we had learned from this. And then there were just like ideas popping off of ideas as we're trying to put out a literal fire, y'all, right? But the point is, is that I would love for Matt, you can start, maybe talk about what is the emerging vision or radical dream that came out of that beachside conversation slash fire? And what are some hopes and intentions you have around this project that we're about to hopefully birth soon? So, I mean, public education in the U.S. right now, most everyone listening would probably agree it is a really critical moment, right? I mean, there's, you know, it's it's a crisis moment, let's say. I mean, every time I talk to teachers, there's this feeling of people saying, you know, I just feel powerless. I feel like the system is not working. There's not enough social emotional support. There's not enough resources. We're understaffed. We can't even find subs. Can we even go forward? And so I think what I feel like is missing in the conversation today around this is two things. One is a sense of imagination. And and this, I think you said radical dreaming, right? So how do we really reimagine a different possibility? So, you know, one of the things we talked about was back when the Coalition of Essential Schools existed, or for me, I remember the Teacher for Social Justice Conference every year in San Francisco as these touch points where you could get together with other people that were like-minded and feel inspired and feel a sense of hope and dream together, right? But I think the other piece, and again, this is the organizer in me talking, is the lack of a sense of of empowerment, the lack of a sense that people can actually do something about it. Our culture is so individualistic that everybody thinks, oh, I have to solve this all on my own. When the truth is that the answer, I think, is in organizing, right? It's like, it's actually collective power that's going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So you got to start by the dreaming together, right? And then you make a plan. And often there's already a consensus about what the problem is and what needs to happen. That's what, I mean, Ella Baker and Bob Moses talked about that. You know, we just lost Bob Moses Mm -hmm. recently and he was such a giant in this work. But I mean, to say, he always used to say, organizers or leaders don't create a consensus. You find the consensus that already exists in a community and then you begin to build power collectively to make the change happen. And the other thing Bob said is the main thing is not to set out with grand projects. Everything starts at your doorstep. Just get deeply involved in something. You throw a stone in one place and the ripples spread. So it's not about changing the whole education system, but it is about having a vision for what that system could look like and then making the change in your classroom, in your school, in your school district, on whatever level you can create change, that's the place to start. I think just adding to the ripple metaphor and like collective organizing, but also connecting back to the previous question around generations is for me, it's around how do I switch my own identity to now being the elder? Mm. Not saying that I have all this knowledge to share or inspire, Mm. but that, you know, we need to be careful not to patronize the younger generation, right? There is so much good work happening in classrooms. There's so much resilience in our teachers right now, right? And it is, it's around where do we provide that sense of hope and space? Our job is to hold the container while not providing the solution, right? We can say, this is kind of what worked for us to get to this similar space, because change is going to happen, yeah. right, with the younger generation. It already is. What's missing right now also, I think, is that sense of idealism that helped us get to where we were, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I do think it's our responsibility to provide that space and that energy, right? Like, how do we energetically help and support that process for teachers now? 
Thank you for calling us into this gradual transition to being elders and what it means to hold space and create a container for the kind of conversations that need to happen right now. I really appreciate it. Let's go to this lightning round. We can do it. We can do it. Okay. You are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. Matt, what's the first thing you do? Breathe and remind myself that when I'm triggered, that's coming from me, not the other person. Breathe and pause. Notice my physical reaction and stay inside my body and get out of my head. All right, Jessica, we'll start with you. What is a practice or a way of being that keeps you grounded in the face of resistance and oppression? Human connection, patience. Matt. I did not grow up with any faith tradition, but I've started going to church every week. Wow, that's beautiful. All right, Matt, what is one form of street data that every educator should gather? Shadow a student, not for one class, for the entire day. And if you're not bored and exhausted by the end of the day, I want to know about that school. That's such a good provocation. Jess? Akiva panel and recording voices and then re-listening in a different space by yourself. This is like the advanced studies we do the class <laughs> Wow. All right, Jess, what is a type of data you feel is overused? This is going to sound so cliche. Street data, the term. Mm. We like to say that we heard something. We like to call it street data. And then sometimes we jump to a Band-Aid solution without taking time to co-construct with young people or our colleagues. Mm. Matt. I know it's been said before on this podcast, but it bears repeating standardized tests that are all derived from eugenics-based IQ tests and undermine the dignity of our children. What's one essential feature of your vision of a classroom? Um, it's a place where the dignity of every person is valued from the moment they walk in the door. Mm. Mm. Fun and laughter. Oh, such good answers. All right, final one. We'll start with you, Jess. A great learning experience will. A great learning experience will energize me to learn even more and understand myself better. Oh, Matt. A great learning experience will make you realize you have more power than you thought you did. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. You guys are killing me. So good. All right. So just in fun. the nick of time. I know this is so good. This is this is like our own little church gathering. Whether we're like putting out fires or igniting fires together, I'm so grateful to be in relationship with the three of you and to see what next level of dream we manifest together. And I just really appreciate you both taking time to join us today on Street Data Pod. My heart is so full. So thank you for your precious time and for all the laughs and for all the things that we're going to do together. Y'all are such a joy. And I'm so grateful to be in community with you all again. Yeah, no, uh, thank you so much. And I'm wondering, can I get a copy of this show on VHS tape? Because <laughs> as an elder, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to watch it in any other format. So, but I, really, no, I really appreciate being here with all of you. You don't want an eight track or whatever. <laughs> I don't eight track. Actually, would be good. Yes, thank you for having me. It was a great end to a very challenging week. And so mm. you've ignited and re-sparked the fire inside of me to continue on with patience. Lots of love.
Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera, my former student, for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number. 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all, and we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Next week on Street Data Pod. Indigenous pedagogy is working from love and deep respect for change and the courage it takes to continue forward. We have to feel that in order to know it. Through ceremony, we honor the sacred, the spiritual, the emotional. We honor each other. We lift each other up. It is a way of doing rather than a what of doing. Jessica instead of Jess. You guys, someone is ringing my doorbell and they've been doing it for the last five minutes. And we I can't hear it. Like, we can't hear it. I don't know who it is and yes. they won't they won't go away. Should I go get it? It's my squatters, Jess. It's my squatters. They're like <laughs>